invite you again this morning to turn back to the passage in 1 Corinthians that we read just a little while ago. If you're not familiar with this text, it has been dubbed the resurrection chapter, and rightfully so because it's Paul's lengthy, uh, or most lengthy, uh, exposition of the resurrection of King Jesus, and not just the fact of it, but what it really means for us as Christ followers in our daily lives. Um, In this paragraph, you can see in the opening phrase, um, Paul is reminding them, this is not something new that he is telling them, he's reminding them of gospel truth, um, something that he preached originally to them when they first became converts to Christianity, and uh, so he's going to remind them of, it's kind of like what we do on Sunday nights, if you come to a small group tonight, uh, we take the sermon from this morning, which I'm giving to you now, and we find and strategically implement uh, practical ways to live it out in our daily lives as we go into uh, our regular lives throughout the week. That's kind of what chapter 15 is going to be about. And it's kind of bracketed just to give you some framework so you can have the mindset of the uh, uh, Corinthians as they receive this text. He talks in verse 1 about how the gospel he preached to them. And he says the same phrase uh, at the end of verse 2. I preached to them. And if you go to the end of the text... He talks about preaching to them again. And so the whole thing is framed on this is a message. This is what's been preached to them. This is the gospel that's been announced to them. And it's what changed their lives. And if you have read Corinthians or any part of it, you'll know that that was pretty dramatic. I mean, there were a lot of what we would call very uh, out there kind of sins that they were involved in. In fact, in Corinthians, they were still involved in doing some of those things inside the church, even as Paul wrote to them this epistle. So it was quite a radical change that had taken place. And this was the very thing that Paul had preached to them. Um, But there was a danger. It was a little bit of a warning. And you can see that also um, in verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 2. He says, this is the gospel which you have received. It's the gospel in which you stand. It's the gospel which was preached to you. He says, and now it's the gospel that you need to hold on to. And this is a good message for us this morning. We live in a culture, and it's pretty obvious, that it's very contrary to Christianity. Um, It is contrary to the things of the Word of God in almost every level possible. And it would be easy to think that at times that, as the phrase is going to be repeated throughout this chapter, that we are doing something in vain. That it, the labor that we do, the work that we do, the stand that we take, and holding on to the gospel, is it really worth it? And in verse number 2, and verse number 10, and verse number 14, and in verse number 58, spread out and sprinkled throughout this chapter, here's what Paul keeps repeating to the Corinthians. It's not in vain. Your faith is not in vain. Your belief is not in vain. Your faith is not futile. And at the end he says, and your labor is not in vain. And because that's true, and because Jesus is alive, here's what your responsibility is. Hear me? Ready? You got to hold on to him. You got to hold on to the word that has been preached to you. You got to hold on to gospel grace. Now see, Christianity is mainly portrayed at times and rightfully so, that it's God holding on to you. Christianity is God coming into your life by his grace and grabbing a hold of your life and changing your life, and it is that, and that is always the first part of it. But there's another part of it that the Bible also stresses, and that it's not just God holding on to you, but it's you in return and response to that grace holding on to God. See, we might want to call this 
today, this sermon, in the grip of grace. And we need to get a grip on grace in our lives because we are facing and rapidly approaching our very much difficult times that are going to take place for us as individual Christians and as a church. And the admonition that Paul gives to us to hold fast, to hold on to, to get a grip to those things in our lives are absolutely crucial. And the reason he can say it, and I'm glad to be able to again express it to you this morning as believers, is that Jesus Christ is alive. Now, I'm going to say something, and it's not an understatement by any stretch or any imagination at all. Because Jesus is alive, it changes everything. It changes everything. And, and watch, that's the, big, that's the big funnel. But let me say it again. The fact that Jesus is alive changes everything, and it also changes you. It changes you and me. Because the tomb is empty, and we're going to celebrate that on Easter, because the tomb is empty, your life is not empty. It's actually full. Because resurrection power also, when it comes into your life, brings resurrection purpose. And if you're looking for significance, and if you're looking for meaning, and you're looking for the purpose for which God created you, and in Christ Jesus recreated you, here's what Paul would say. It's not in vain to believe in Jesus. To have faith in Jesus and his death and resurrection is not an empty endeavor. It's not futile. It's not without purpose. It's not without worth, he says. And the hope that he gives to us, and he makes it very clear in this chapter, is not just a hope that is down the road a bit, can I say, when we die, but the hope that we have in Christ and his resurrection and the change that occurs is not just our body someday, but our life right now today. And so what he does in our text, and I want to concentrate on the third one, is he gives the Corinthians a review lesson of three proofs, three proofs that indicate and give us confidence and hope that Jesus is alive. You can see them one at a time. They are God's word in verses 3 and 4. They are God's witnesses in verses 5 through 8. And they are God's work of transformation in us in verses 9 through 11. So we're going to take the time real briefly to do 1 and 2 and really spend time on number 3. So one of the proofs of God's uh, and, and, and that God gives us about Jesus being alive is what I call objective truth. It's a proof that the scriptures give us, and Paul indicates that. Look what verses 3 and 4 read. For I delivered to you as of first importance, which I also received, that King, or Christ, that always means King, King Jesus died for our sins. And he's going to say this phrase twice. According or in accordance with the scriptures. And then he says he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And the reason he says that is that it's not a New Testament revelation only that Jesus was going to come and die and be raised again on the third day. It is God's plan. It's the way that God had planned our salvation from the very beginning. And the Old Testament itself is replete and filled with references to a suffering servant and to the sacrifice that would be necessary for our sins. And story after story after story in the Bible give us the picture that there would come someday someone who would ultimately fulfill the Levitical sacrificial system and on the third day rise again, and that is contained in the scriptures. It has been God's story from the very beginning. It's something that he promised us. It's something that he planned for us. It is very prophetic by its nature. It is not what God did in reference to the religious leaders killing Jesus. It was not plan B. It was God's plan from the very beginning 
There's an old idiom, or, or I should say a maxim in Christian culture that says, and maybe you've heard it, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. Have you ever heard that? Well, let me, let me just mix, mix it up a little bit. God says it, our text says, they saw it. Paul says, I lived it, that settles it. Because here's what God says. Here's the proof of Jesus' life. Yes, God says it, that's number one. See, it's God's word that is the proof that what Jesus did on Easter is the, resurre- is the sacrifice for our sins. God says it, but it's more than that, see. It's not just God's word is the first proof, but God's witnesses are the second proof. And by the language and the way that the grammar is put together in the original languages, they validate the proof of the resurrection at the same time equally. Look what verse four, 3 says again. That Christ died for our sins. See the word that? Look at verse 4 now. That he was buried and that he was raised in the third day in accordance with the scriptures. But notice verse 5. Same language, and that. So he's making a series of statements that Jesus died, buried, and was raised again. And and those are proofs that what Jesus did was planned by God, that the resurrection is real because God said it. But there's more to it. He says God has provided for Christians and all that will believe. He's provided another proof. And he uses the language, says, and that. Let me keep going. And you know what that is? People have seen Jesus after he died and was raised. See, almost everybody in this list was not there the day Jesus rose. They didn't see him come out of the tomb. But after that, they did see him alive. They saw him. And both the testimony of objective truth and objective uh, testimonies are equal. He says here, it's the word of God and it's validated in a sense by, or backed up and supported by better, people who have actually seen Jesus alive. And so he lists them. Look at the text. He was seen by Kepha. That's his Aramaic name for Peter. And he, so he was seen by an individual. And then number two, he was seen by the 12. That's a small group, the disciples that followed Jesus. And then it says in verse 6, he was seen by not just an individual and a small group, but a very large group of 500 people, and he doesn't even give them the names. He says, and if you want to go test the accuracy of what I'm saying, most of them are still alive into this day, and you can go and talk to them most likely like Paul had done. And then it says in verse 7, he was seen by James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, who was one of the most skeptical people about Jesus and who he was, but after the resurrection, he became a leader, in fact, the leader in the Jerusalem church. Verse 7 also says, then he was seen by the apostles, people who are outside the closest-knit group of friends to Jesus, and now we're getting a little farther outside to other kinds of people. And then it says, last of all, verse 8, Paul writes, and then he was seen last of all by me, and that is the most incredible one, because unlike all the other people on this list of witnesses to the resurrection, Paul was not a follower of Jesus before he met him on the Damascus Road. He wasn't a disciple. He wasn't an apostle. He was not a believer. He didn't believe in Jesus at all. And so here's what Paul does. Let me give you the proof. Open up your scriptures, and I'll show you how the Bible says that Jesus is who he is and that he died and was raised. It was prophesied. It's nothing new. It's what God had done from the beginning. And then he says, let me give you a second proof. Not only God's word, but God's witnesses. And let me list them. I've got over 500 of them. People who knew Jesus really well, people who didn't, and actually one guy who actually hated Jesus, and he, that's me. 
He says, let me tell you that there is proof out there that Jesus is alive, so you have to know that your life and everything you do it is not in vain. And we could spend more time on those two proofs, without a doubt. But I want to focus on the third one. And they all build on each other. They're interrelated. They're completely interdependent on one another. And the third one is we have God's word and God's witnesses, but we have God's work. And here's where it's going to get personal. So the proofs of Jesus' resurrection are scriptural, they're historical, but they're also personal. See? See, your life is to be a living apologetic for the reality of the resurrection. Paul gives us in these verses, verses 9 and 10 in particular, he gives us a brief summary of his personal conversion about when he became a Christian. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but outside of the event of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus, there is no event in the Bible that has more historical validation and information than the conversion of the Apostle Paul. It is written about many, many, many times in the New Testament. And I I read them all this week, all the times where he tells about how God changed his life. And, And I had to ask the question, why? Why is there so much in the New Testament, other than Jesus's death on the cross, this event gets more pen and ink, can I say, than anything else? Why? Here's why. Because 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul writes this, and he knew this about himself, that God had shown mercy on him through Jesus Christ so that his conversion, and this is the word, would be an example, and other versions say a pattern of all those in the future who would be saved. In other words, let me say it simply, Paul knew that the way that God saved him and the features of his conversion would be something that we could all set our lives on. This is what it looks like when you become a Christian. This is what it looks like. You put your conversion next to Paul, and there are going to be things that are far different. You're not going to be on the road to Damascus, and the light's not going to shine down from heaven. There's a lot of differences. So it's not a detailed pattern that his conversion, it it is a descriptive pattern. It's that their main features of what took place in his life will eventually be true of all people who are saved. Now, we could go throughout the auditorium this morning and we talk about the day that you were converted, right? And we know that conversion is an event, but it's also a process. And we know that when you become a Christian, for some people, the conversions, and there are some in here, were very dramatic. I mean, you might have been a a drug addict, you might have been alcoholic, your whole life was falling apart. And and I've talked to so many different people of different things that have been going on. You were really in bondage to a certain sin, and and God delivered you from that. And we could tell the stories. And some of them are dramatic. Some of them, it took time, and it was very slow, your conversion. I mean, you came to church for years and years and years, and you heard the gospel over and over and over again. But it wasn't until that one day, after all that time, that God broke through by the spirit of grace into your life and, and changed you forever. But it took so long. Some people, it's very early in their life. Some people are saved when, they, when they're in their elementary years. And some people, they could give testimony if it wasn't until they were in their 70s that they came to know Christ. And, and so there's a lot of differences in the way that we are brought to Christianity and we're born again. But can I tell you this? When we look at Paul's life today, there are going to be two features that are true of everyone who is truly born again, who's truly saved. And as we look at them together briefly, here's the question I want you to ask yourself. Is your life proof 
that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real. Let me say it again. Ask yourself this question as I'm talking. Is your life proof that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real? It was for Paul, and that's why he put it in his text. That's the third proof. God's word, God's witnesses, and God's work in Paul's life. Now, the framework is, to show you how God does that, in verse 10, it reads this. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's grace number one. And his grace, second use, toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than them all. But I want you to know, it wasn't me. But the grace, there's the third time, the grace of God. See, Paul wants to ring that bell. He wants us to hear it loud and clear that you know the difference that's taken place in my life. You know how I was saved? Listen, if there was a yearbook that was out in Paul's high school or his college, it would have, everyone would have signed it least likely to become a Christian. Right? He would have got that award hands down over everybody else. And he wants you to know, hey, you know how I was? You know what, what marked my life? I want you to know, you know what took place in my life? You know what changed me? He would say, grace changed me. See, that's the first feature of everyone who's going to be saved. The Paul, Paul and every one of us is that gospel of grace or gospel grace works in you. See, gospel grace works in you. Look at the verbs in our text. The verb to be, I am verb, is used four times. Listen to what he says. I am the least of the apostles. In Ephesians 3, 7 and 8, he says, I'm the least of all the saints. And then he says here, I, I am, I am not worthy to be an apostle. And then he says, but you know what? I am, by the grace of God, what I am. See, see, Christianity, God's grace changes you in the very core of who you are. It changes you down where the, in the very being of your existence People think, or would like to think, that Christianity is kind of a big change, but more of a big change like you're going to change careers. Like, I do this for a living, and now I've decided, uh, I think I'm going to do that. Or it's kind of like um, a change, you know, I, this was my political view, but now I think I'm going to take this political view. Or, hey, have you ever done this? You know, I was doing this, I was eating, these were my eating habits, but now I'm going to try this new diet and I'm going to do, and people think that Christianity is kind of like a change like that. I mean, it's a change from this view to that view, or from this kind of diet to this kind of, or this kind of career, and those are big changes, but that's not what Christianity is like. It's far more radical. It's not just changing externally what you might eat, or where you might work, or what you might do for, it's not that kind of change. It's far deeper. It's down on the inside of where you are and where you live. Did you notice that Paul did not say in verse 10, by the grace of God, I think what I think. He didn't say that. He did not say even, by the grace of God, I do what I do, although that was true. Do you know what he says? By the grace of God, I am what I am. You know when Paul makes that statement, he's saying that here's what's true of all Christians who are truly Christians that they get saved and it changes them down deep inside. It changes who they are. 
See, gospel grace did not just reform Paul, it redefined Paul. He didn't stop being Paul. He didn't stop having a past. He didn't stop being Jewish. He didn't lose his ethnicity. He didn't lose his background. But here's what, it changed all of it. It redefined everything. And now everything was not defined by being Jewish or by being an Israelite or even by Torah. Now everything was defined by his relationship with Jesus. That's what Christianity does. And if you're saved this morning, that's what it will do in your life. It changes everything. It's not that your life has Jesus kind of added on to it. He's not just an accessory to your life. When, he, when you become a Christian, he's the center of your life, and everything else becomes an accessory, see? So much so was this radical in his life that in verse 8, here's, what he, here's how he describes his new birth. One born untimely and it's a nice English way because the original Greek says he was a stillborn child or someone that was aborted and left. He says, that's me. He says, I had a very abnormal spiritual birth. I should have never been saved. He says, and there are two reasons why, and he gives them. Why does he describe himself that way? Why does he say, hey, God's grace changed me, but it never probably should have happened because do you know who I am? Look at the next verse. And he introduces it with a little four. See, he says, verse, he says four, for I am the least of the apostles. Why? See, here's what he say. Hey, you see all those lists of people that saw Jesus? I'm last on the list, but let me tell you, the truth is, I'd like to write to you this, and I'm not only last on the list, I shouldn't even be on the list. They should never have had Paul saw Jesus. It should never have happened. I'm the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be an apostle. Here's why I wasn't a disciple beforehand. I'm unworthy to it. And then he tells you why. Because I persecuted the church. Let me tell you a little bit about Paul if you don't know him. He's an extremely powerful man with incredible influence. He'd be like a level of a CEO of a company today. He's got sway over people. When he talks, people listen. He rises to the top, and he's got aspiration. He's got aim. He is a riser to the top. He's intelligent, almost to the point of being genius. And he's actively passionate. He's not a person who just talks about ideas and then has conversations. No, he's an action person. He gets involved. He would be a person that would go to, uh, you know, things and, and, and walk on Washington. That's the kind of guy he is. He's passionate. See, he did not just believe that Christianity was blasphemous. He went out and exterminated Christians. That's who he is. Acts 8.3 says of Saul that he was wreaking havoc in the church and he was doing it by arresting and killing men and women. Can I tell you this? In the early church in the Middle East, even to this day, women are not given much. When it comes to war, when it comes to events, women are not seen as a threat. And that's why when they strap bombs to themselves nowadays and blow up soldiers, it was just uncommon. No one did that. Women didn't act like that. They weren't a threat in any way, shape, or form. And so they were never arrested. They were never the ones sought after. But Saul was so extremely intense about his hatred for Christianity that he didn't just arrest men. He, 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 he arrested women. It was unheard of. That's how zealous he was against Christ. He hated them. He hunted them down. He locked them up. 
He executed, had Stephen executed. We might say that Paul was a one-man wrecking crew for Christianity. But on the Damascus Road, the day he got saved, God's grace knocked him flat on the ground. I call it the resurrection power punch. It's not just gives us purpose, but it punched, see, it knocked him off his animal. And God's grace got a hold of him and did a work inside of him. That's why Paul would later write in Romans 1.16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. You know why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. He could say that. You know why? Because he experienced that power. He remembered the day it knocked him off his horse and knocked him to the ground and knocked some sins into him and changed his life. Did you hear that? God's grace, hear me, God's grace is not just a concept. It is not just a principle. It is not just a set of biblical propositions or doctrines in the Bible, although it is that. It is not just a philosophy or a psychology or a sociology at its essence. You know what it is? At its essence, it is a power built on those truths that changes people's lives. We need to grasp that in our day. As we face all the issues going on in America today, we need to realize what is the power that can change those things. Can I tell you this? Cultural theories cannot solve racism. Only the power of gospel grace can do that. Political parties cannot solve the problem of violence. Only the power of gospel grace can do that. Psychology cannot solve our emotional and relational issues. We need the power of gospel grace to do that. Philosophy cannot step in and stop the incredible sexual revolution that is taking place in America and around the world today. The gospel grace of Jesus Christ, that power alone can do it. But our culture doesn't get that. We keep trying to change people and reform them from the outside without having a change on the inside. It's only when the gospel grace of Jesus Christ invades a life and takes over can any permanent and lasting and eternal weight of change be accomplished. But you might be sitting here and saying, Pastor Walker, hey, all right, the gospel has some power, but you don't know, you don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. If I stood up and told everybody in church my past, I don't know if anyone would want to hang around with me. You don't know who I am. And you may be right, but I'm going to invite you this morning to look at who Paul was. Two identity statements in the text, verses apart. He says, I, w- I persecuted the church. And then he says, I worked harder than them all. See, those are world apart, those statements. I hated the church, and now I work for the church. I hated Jesus, I love Jesus. I want to destroy the church, and now I live to build the church up. And you look at those polar extreme statements, and you wonder, how did that happen? What's the line between those two lines? And you know what it is, verse 10? By the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul's saying, I was this, but now I'm that. And so I ask you this morning, do you have a past like Paul's past? Because here's what he did. He separated marriages between men and women and put them in jail, and many of them never saw their spouse again. See, he separated marriages. He incarcerated people. He incarcerated people. 
and he exterminated lives. I don't know if Paul ever woke up in the middle of the night in a sweat because he was dreaming about the screams of the people that he had stoned and had executed and put in prison, the cries of the moms who were torn apart and away from their families and dads who didn't know what happened to them because of what he did. I don't know if he ever woke up from all or had a dream about all that, but I can tell you this, he had to live with that because that was his past. And I don't know what your past is this morning. I don't know what the things that you would say. I wish that no one would ever know about those things. But can I tell you this? Like Paul, gospel grace can forgive it. Gospel grace in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection has paid for it. And it can blow it away in your life and completely and radically change you. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. Listen, and it can change everyone. But that's the first feature. Paul's salvation which should be in our, the same way in our salvation is here's what gospel grace works in us. But there's a second one, and they're both necessary. Gospel grace not only works in us, gospel grace works through us. Look at verse 10 again. By the grace of God, I am what I am. That statement shows us that God's grace, listen, it will not leave us where we were. It is not that you get saved and now you have no more sin and the biggest change in your life is going to be when you die. See, gospel grace doesn't change you just from being immortal to immortality. No, it changes you from living in death to living in life. It changes you from darkness to light. And Paul says, by the grace of God, the radical change that didn't just take place when I died and went to heaven, but changes now in my, I am what I am. Not I am what I will be. I am what I am. See, and then he says in verse 10, and rightfully so, his grace toward me was not, here's our phrase, in vain. It wasn't without purpose. It wasn't worthless. You know why? Because he didn't just save me so that I could be Someone who dies and goes to heaven. No, it wasn't purposeless. It had a purpose. It changed me so that right now I could live for him. Is that true for you? Some people think that salvation is just God's way of negatively getting all the things, condemnation to hell, sin, and all that out of my life. And it is that, but that's only half of it. See, it also fills up our life. Because God's gospel grace produces gospel works. He's not bragging when he says this, but listen to this. And he's comparing himself with all the apostles, the ones who followed Jesus for three years when he never did. He says, I work harder than all of them. All of them. And, and it's a contrast. And the word but, he uses but, I work he's trying to say this, and it's the strongest way you can say a contrast. In other words, here's how hard they work, but I work way harder than them. And Paul would say this, it's because of God's grace. Now, at the end of this book, or I should say the end of this chapter, don't turn there, he tells the Corinthians what it means for them. He has shown from his example what gospel grace changes him, but he tells them at the end of the chapter, verse 58, listen, be steadfast, immovable, listen, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding. Abounding in work, those two words 
used to describe how gospel grace should change the Corinthians are the exact two words in our text that describe him. Abounding and labor or work, they're the exact same words. And what Paul is saying, here's how you should live. And if you want to know what it looks like, watch me. See what the gospel has done. It has not only worked in me, but it worked on me, and it works through me. So the gospel of Jesus' grace is not just something that works salvation into you, but works service out of you. Do you see that? That's what true gospel grace is. And grace that does not change and energize you is not gospel grace. See, Paul says, I want you to know, even though I worked harder than them all, let me tell you how that was possible. It wasn't just me. It wasn't because I was better. It wasn't because I was superior. It was because of grace. You see how he says it? It's all of grace, isn't it? Isn't that what Spurgeon said? It's all of grace. It's changing you, energizing you. You're working and you're serving and you're tireless for the cause of the kingdom. You know what that's because of? Grace. And when people looked at Paul's life, here's what they would say. When they look at the radical change, listen, and the radical energy that he put in to ministering and serving and witnessing and living for Jesus, here's what people see. That's proof of the resurrection. See, that's, see, I can hear the scriptures and and, and I know the witnesses, but let me tell you this. Look at that man's life. Look what God's grace has done. As we close today, can you just transport yourself just for a moment? Picture yourself in a courtroom, and you're standing there, and the judge has come in, and everyone's been seated. And the issue today in the courtroom is whether the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real. And so they talk about it for a little while, and they go back and forth, the lawyers do. And then finally, they call you to the stand, and you're a witness. And you're sitting in the seat, And they began asking you questions. And they say, hey, we've read the scriptures and we've debated it today. And there were some people who were witnesses back in the day, but there's no one alive anymore. But what we really want to know is, are you a Christian? And they they instruct you to know this, though, that in America that you are innocent until proven guilty. Because to them, being a Christian is a crime. And they want you to know that they're not saying that you're a Christian yet because you're innocent of of that accusation until we can prove it otherwise. And so they decided to ask you some questions, but then they want to verify it because they have videos. And they have surveillance. And they've taken and watched your life and how that you treat your spouse and your kids and what your priorities are and what really matters to you and whether you read your Bible and pray and whether you live holy lives and the music you listen to and what you watch on television and whether you're involved in ministry. And say they've taking videos and surveillance, and they're putting it together. And then on top of that, to your surprise, not only have they showed some of those things, which weren't easy to swallow, but they've asked other people to come in that they've talked to in the neighborhood. They've asked people in your family to come in, co-workers where you are at your job. They've asked them to come in and testify of the Christianity that you say you have at your job. They've even called your neighbors in. And they've all spoken about your Christianity. And the question is, would there be any proof or enough proof to convict you? Or would they throw it out of court and say, you know, truthfully, you're innocent of that accusation because there's not enough evidence that you've ever really changed. 
in your life? Or would you say this, or would the judge say this? Guilty of grace. Guilty of grace. It's obvious that you've changed. It's obvious that you're not like most other people. And the, and the change and the energy in your life, you are guilty of grace because you must be a Christian. What about you? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around, can I tell you one of the biggest needs in our culture today is a living apologetic. They need to hear what the Bible says without a doubt because without that, without hearing truth, there is no faith or salvation. We never want to downplay the Bible. It's the most important thing. But you know what follows it up? A life that shows that the resurrection is real. And the question is, no matter what you profess, is that you? Paul says, let me tell you what the grace of God is. It's not only something that's in me, but he says in the last verse, but it's the grace of God that was with me. With me. See, it affected everything in his life. Not just where he was going when he died, but everything he was doing before he died. Is that the grace you're experiencing? Is that the grace that energizes you? See, you can come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, and his grace, it can change you. If you've never trusted him, you never recognize that he died on the cross and rose again for your sins. See, not because of your church attendance, not because of where you go to church, not because of how good you might be or think you are in comparison to others. Here, has God's grace changed you? Has it? If not, you can today. I'll be here after the service please come forward and talk to me when everyone's leaving. I'd be glad to set up a time with you or one of our pastors who talked to you about God's grace in your life. Father, help us. Help us to see our true condition, our true spiritual relationship with you. Father, thank you for grace. It does forgive our sins. It does give us a home in heaven. And we'd never want to downplay or minimize that. But Father, what we're asking today is that God's grace would produce in our lives resurrection living. I pray for those who are contemplating and considering those thoughts today that you would work by the power of your Holy Spirit and your grace to bring that change into their lives by faith in Jesus Christ, who is the Son of the living God. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.